Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. So I am here with somebody whose videos I have enjoyed for many a moon. We're talking about Paul Joseph Watson. This means I have to be referred to as Stefan Basil Molyneux because I will not be outnamed numbered by anybody on the planet. He's the senior news editor for Infowars.com. You can find him on YouTube at youtube.com slash prison planet live. All one word. Uh, how are you doing, Paul? Nice to chat with you. Hey, Stefan. Good to be here. So one of the great things about doing sort of social media political commentary is, at least for me, like I never know what the heck is coming next. And certainly I've sort of been focused on trying to get more objectivist, libertarian, philosophical, non-aggression principles out to the planet as a whole and uh, never really thought that, you know, imminent migration slash invasion of masses of young military-aged Muslim men was going to be the next thing on the uh, agenda. Although, of course, since the government did have a policy of bringing peace and stability to the Middle East, we would naturally assume that it would result in neither peace and stability in the Middle East nor in any surrounding region. But uh, did you see any of this coming or did this come as, a, as a, much of a surprise to you as it did to me? Well, I mean, it's been coming in the UK for a long time because we had the Blair government back in the 90s, which Basically, it was revealed that they had a program to deliberately increase immigration to massive levels to dilute water down the culture and basically import a group of people who would be dependent on government and therefore vote for more government, which obviously benefits left wing parties whose whole philosophical basis is founded on that constant need to, you know, re-import these people, have them dependent on government and vote for government. So I, I did kind of see it coming in Europe because after the Euros in 2014, there was this huge conservative backlash, which in fact had been taking place for, you know, two or three years before that, where these leftist statist parties were getting very nervous indeed about actually being supplanted by genuinely limited government conservative parties that wanted more freedom, that wanted less regulation, and they were attracting uh, huge support throughout Europe. So then you had this migration issue, which kind of kicked off, I guess, around six months ago now. That's when it really started to come to a head. And again, they have exploited it to such a degree where now they're bringing in, for example, 80,000 people into Berlin alone. They're housing them in three- and four-star hotels. And we're talking about 10,000 refugees at a cost of 600 million euros, which, is good, of course, is going to be paid for by the taxpayer. Meanwhile, in Berlin, you have 10,000 people, the exact same number, of homeless on the streets. So that's just one example. We're talking about 1.1 million migrants that have been imported into Germany over the past year. So... I saw it coming because I knew that they would have to stem this conservative wave. I guess I didn't see it accelerating to such a quick degree over the space of just five or six months, which it has now. And it's it's created a crisis that top security officials, top army chiefs throughout Europe, a warning could not only bring civil unrest, but actual war in Europe. So the only thing that surprised me about it is the sheer pace of it as it's developed. Well, I think that one of the things that you touched on there is this um, split of social narratives between what were traditionally and often unhelpfully called the left and the right. And one of the things that a lot of surveys have shown is that people tend to gravitate towards information that reinforces their worldview. 
And so I, certainly since I've been working, I guess, about uh, 10 years or so on the Internet, um, I've sort of noticed that there has been a venue to get more free market principles, more small government principles out to the people. And I think that has created a widening split. Like, I mean, if you look at the polarization between, say, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, I think you are seeing sort of split in a social narrative that I think is weakening civilization's uh, capacity to act in a unified whole considerably. Yeah, I would agree. And what's become apparent with this whole migrant crisis is that the left, the socialists, their whole ideology, which of course is based on, you know, utopianism, this liberal idea that uh, we have to accept, integrate everybody, that everybody's going to get along and everything's just going to be fine, and that no culture is a bad culture, has been completely demolished. That's why we see the, the panic amongst the left wing in their rhetoric, in their narrative, to try and defend or absolve of blame the migrants for something like, you know, the mass molestation of women in Cologne on New Year's Eve. So that precedent has been set whereby the crap that they have spouted for years and years about, for example, rape culture in the West, you know, one in five women being raped on college campuses, when in actual fact women on college campuses in the US are less likely to be raped than women in the general population. Now that that's been completely demolished with this rape epidemic that Europe has imported, and every single day now, I'm completely overwhelmed by it, stories of people being knifed, people being molested, people being robbed, people being raped by these migrants that have been brought in is completely overwhelming, but it's demolished that narrative that the main source of oppression is coming from, you know, Western culture. We're importing a bad culture, but they cannot even recognize for a second that this is a bad culture, despite the fact that you've got migrants now defecating in swimming pools, masturbating in hot tubs, you know, molesting women at these places. That proves that we've imported a bad culture, but they can't recognize it because they can't admit for a second that some cultures are better than others. And generally speaking, Western culture is the greatest. It provides the highest standards of living, the highest standards of freedom. And now it's being subverted by a fifth column, which is these leftist governments in Europe and their supporters. And that whole narrative being demolished is just amazing to see because every day they have to stack up new excuses. They have to stick their heads in the ground farther and farther to deny this basic fact that we're importing a bad culture and the impacts of it are already being felt. I mean, just before I got on the air today, I was contacted by somebody in Sweden who said that a volunteer at a migrant camp was gang raped by migrants, but they didn't want to report it to the police or to the media because they thought it might make the migrants look bad. And we've seen this over and over again. We've seen it in Sweden with a woman who was raped on a train and said she didn't want to report it to police because the migrant might get deported. So they've embraced Stockholm syndrome or Cologne syndrome, as people are now calling it, to such a degree that it becomes, it becomes almost tribal. It almost provides a flashback to, you know, tribal societies where women were abducted from other tribes and they didn't complain about it because any form of resistance would mean they would be killed. So we're almost up to that level with this migrant crisis where, you know, they could be beheading people on the streets of Berlin and the left would still 
claim tolerance and denounce anyone who opposed it, who criticized it as a bigot. It, it is really nice, though, to see, and this is a nice switch of narrative from the left as a whole, it's really nice to see them suddenly so concerned with men's feelings. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. It'd be nice if it was European men, say, for the past two generations, but that may be a little bit much to hope for. I think this, this mask falling away from the left is you, you never want bad things to happen, but when they do, you want to get as much good out of the bad things as possible. It's the only way to mitigate the uh, the horrors of the situation and the mask falling away from the last left that they don't care about minorities that they don't care about women that they don't care about any of the things that they claim to care about what they do is they like riling up social divisions in order to rend and undo the fabric of a free society it's the hatred for the free market it's the hatred for freedom of speech it's the fundamental cry bully totalitarian streak that runs through the left that to me is finally being revealed and, uh, you know, whatever I can do to help people see that revelation is really important. But the toxicity of the left and the degree to which they simply set people against each other in order to undo the fabric of a civilized society, I think, is hopefully at least somewhat becoming clear. You know, Lena Dunham is now on there complaining about Twitter when someone just got gang raped. And there was a woman who was in Germany who used pepper spray to prevent a sexual attack upon herself is now being charged how could this, I mean, where, where are the feminists? And the absence of the feminists, I think, is something that people are going to notice at some point. Well, I mean, they were already on the rack coming out of 2015 after all the, the multitude of embarrassments. You know, we had the, them trying to censor the Athena Tennis Girl poster they, with the jazz hands thing. I mean, they've been completely ridiculed for the best part of two years now to an, an intensifying level, which I've been a part of, obviously. So now this Cologne rape scandal happens. And of course, the first thing that the mayor of Cologne said afterwards, she issued a code of conduct, not for the migrants not to rape people, but for the women of Cologne to keep rapists at arm's length. Now, you, can you imagine a, a mayor, for example, in London saying that if a woman had just been gang raped by a bunch of, you know, white British people, the outrage would be something to behold. But she says that we had a mayor in Germany the other day who a grandfather complained about how his grandchild was being harassed by migrants near the school. The mayor said, well, just don't go near the school. We had schools in Germany sending out letters to parents saying, don't dress your children in shorts or short skirts because it might provoke the migrants. It might provoke the it might offend the migrants and provoke them to attack the children. So, I mean, a story I covered today, this is another example. Finnish police, <laughs> you've got to see this video. They've put out a video because, of course, in Finland, where these rapes are also happening, women are taking all these self-defense courses. They want to defend themselves against these attackers. So the response from the Finnish police was to put out a video advising women how to repel rapists. And their advice was for to women to hold their hands out as if some kind of Jedi-style force would repel the attacker. A These are not the rape. boobs you're looking for. These are not the boobs you're looking for. I mean, that's some Obi-Wan stuff. And I remember in the 90s, Camille Paglia came out with, I think, a book called Sexual Persona and other books. And she was talking about the degree to which um, women had grown up under the protection of men and no longer really recognized the danger of certain kinds of behavior. Her argument went something like this. She said, look, 
if you go to a frat party and everyone's drunk and they're high and you're dancing naked or topless on a table and something bad happens, of course, whoever did it was wrong. But you could have acted more sensibly as well. Uh, she sort of likened it to, you know, if I, if I leave my wallet in a park bench in Central Park and come back the next day, whoever stole it was wrong, but I could have taken better care of my wallet. And I remember the, the, the screaming harpies raining down on her like high-flung Athenian spears for even remotely intimating that a woman had any culpability uh, in terms of keeping herself safe. And now this is completely reversed. This... To anybody with a shred of consistency, this is absolutely dizzying. This is like watching O'Brien's interrogation of Winston Smith over and over again on fast forward and reversed. And yet it seems like a lot of people can negotiate these massive reversals with no comment, with no problems. I mean, this this uh, 1984 style, this is the new truth stuff, uh, it seems weird how people can do that because inconsistency has always troubled me. But it doesn't seem to even show up on the radar of a lot of people. Well, again, <laughs> feminist groups after Cologne, they did comment on Cologne. And in fact, there was another article yesterday by a prominent feminist in Feminista online publication. Who did they blame? They blamed German-born men and then drew attention to the Oktoberfest and claimed, oh, this happens all the time. Right. So you're saying that 800, 900 women are molested in Germany at Oktoberfest every single year. It's complete nonsense. And again, it goes back to liberals not having any principles because they're based on the foundation of sandcastles. These are not classical liberals. They're regressives because they tolerate the most regressive and intolerant belief system on the planet, especially towards women, which, of course, is Islam. I mean, it's an open secret now that gang rape is a game that people in North Africa, that men in North Africa play All the time, we saw it in Tahir Square in Egypt back in 2013, where there was a horrifying video of this. A Dutch journalist was assailed by about 20 men, drug away, gang raped. Of course, we had Laura Logan. uh, I think she was a CBS correspondent. Same thing happened to her. She thought she was going to die, gang raped by 200 men. And, I mean, this has a name. It's called Taharosh. It's the gang rape game. It's been common in... Um, Arab societies amongst men for for many generations. So, again, it comes back to some cultures are better than others. Why are we importing an intolerant belief system, an intolerant culture? And why are people who draw attention to this, including Muslim reformers and ex-Muslims, denounced and smeared by so-called liberals? That's that's the heart of it. You had a, a share this story with my listeners as well. Uh, you pointed out that an Islam, um, a Muslim reformer was recently put on a list of Islamophobes for wanting to reform Islam away from honor killings. <laughs> you could tell the story because that's quite mind blowing. Yeah, this was uh, Majid Nawaz, who is a, a Muslim reformer who wrote an article about this. It's a left wing anti fascist group called Hope Not Hate, and they compiled a list of. Um, anti-Muslim bigots, basically a a hit list of anti-Muslim bigots. They published it online. And one of the uh, people on this list was a woman called Raquel Raquel Saraswati, who is a devout Muslim, because she wears the full headdress and and everything, a devout Muslim who campaigns against honor violence. As you said, she's a prominent campaigner. So they listed a devout Muslim who campaigns against honor violence and FGM and all these other things. As an anti-Muslim bigot, this is a left-wing group, predominantly 
white Western liberals listing a devout Muslim as an anti-Muslim bigot because she's taking on and trying to reform the intolerant aspects of Islam. And Ayan Hirsi Ali gets the same thing. I mean, her, her associate was gunned down on the streets of Holland, Amsterdam, in 2004 with a note placed on the body basically saying that Ayan Hirsi Ali is next. And the point is that the regressive left have made an alliance with these Islamists, both of whom are against any kind of reform of the 7th century barbaric belief system, which is Islam. So then you've got people like Glenn Greenwald, of course, who did excellent work on the Snowden revelations. But he's another example of a regressive leftist. And of course, because he's on the, the care gravy train and most of his audience would be offended and put off if he stood up against actual intolerance. So basically, I had a back and forth argument with him on Twitter, calling him out for the fact that as a gay man, he would be thrown off a building in many of these Muslim countries um, while he continually absolves not just radical Islam, but Islamists in general of blame. For example, he came out after Charlie Hebdo and said, oh, the cartoons were really offensive and basically they deserved what they got. So I called him out and he responded and he said, well, I support free speech for everyone. I would even defend a Nazi's free speech. I'm that much of a free speech purist. And this was at the time when the whole um, ban Donald Trump from the UK story was going on um, six or eight weeks ago. So I simply said to him, OK, you, you say you, you would even defend the free speech rights of Nazis. Would you defend the free speech rights of Donald Trump to say what he said about uh, a temporary ban on Muslims entering the US in the same vein. Of course, that's when <laughs> the debate ended. He had nothing to say because they can't be seen to stand up for actual principles because their principles are based on hypocrisy, which, of course, is no foundation whatsoever. That's, the, the, that's what defines the regressive left. Well, yeah, and I, I've sort of been thinking about the degree to which people who are not original thinkers, they don't benefit particularly from free speech. You know, I, mean, I value free speech because a lot of what I say, and I know a lot of what you say, is upsetting to people. And so I don't want to ban free speech because I'm specifically benefiting as an original thinker from putting out ideas that are challenging to people. But if you're just kind of a something-ist, you know, like a leftist, or even in Islam, of course, free speech is not that tolerated because you just go look up the answer. And so if you have people who aren't challenging convention, they benefit less from free speech. And of course, I don't want uh, offensive speech banned because that would put me kind of out of a job. So one of the ways that I know that somebody's not an original thinker is they're either inconsistent or they have the great, I'm all for free speech, but, you know, and it's like, you had me uh, until the word but. And I think that's one way to find out if somebody's actually thinking for themselves or not, is their position on free speech. It's not conditional. It's not, well, it's offensive to other people. That's sort of the whole point. Everything that we have that is of value in the West came about through offending the living hell out of people. You know, there were lots of people invested in slavery, lots of uh, people invested in racism, lots of people invested in the monarchy, lots of people invested in the endless series of wars that shook Europe. And when, you start, when people started to speak out against those things, everyone, well, a lot of people got upset. So it's just weird that we handed this gift that we are then shredding for the sake of cowardice in the here and now when the penalties for going against social convention are far less than they ever used to be. 
That's exactly right. And uh, one manifestation of that, which you see at the moment, is something that I've been following for a couple of years uh, now, which is political websites on the left banning and removing comment sections entirely. Now, you can make the argument that it's their own private property. They can have on there what they want. But, of course, The Guardian came out just yesterday and said, we're not going to allow on many of our articles any comments on articles related to Islam or immigration because the environment is, quote, too toxic. And, of course, they're the ones who decide whether it's toxic or not. We've got Facebook in Germany working with ex-Stasi members in the German government to censor anti-migrant content on social media. They said, oh, it's, it's to prevent hate speech against migrants, you know, to prevent violent threats against migrants. You actually dig into it, and now people are getting home visits from police, in one example in the Netherlands, for saying that their refugee policy was, quote, a bad plan. He said it was a bad plan on Twitter. Home visit from the police, warning us to his future conduct. So again, they introduce it under the idea of banning hate speech. It's basically banning any criticism whatsoever, and people are being hit with fines and imprisonment in Germany for that. But you've got websites removing comment sections altogether. It's not for the reason that they want to eliminate toxic speech. It's for the reason, as studies show, which I highlighted a couple of years ago, the comment sections below articles are proven to sway the opinion of the reader. So they can completely overturn the narrative which is being presented in the article above itself. And that's why Popular Science admitted they did it two years ago. They said, this is stopping us from being able to indoctrinate people about man-made global warming because people were questioning it in the comments. So they simply removed the comments altogether. So that's one manifestation of it. They're frightened of free speech, not because it's toxic or hateful. I mean, leftists and social justice warriors are the most toxic, hateful people on the planet. Every time I make a video about feminists or Islamists, I get death threats every single time. I don't whine all day about it like they do, but they're the most toxic and hateful people on the Internet. So it's not for that reason. The reason is their arguments are being challenged. They're being debunked. They're being overthrown. And they don't like that because they're authoritarians who fundamentally oppose free speech. I was thinking today, very well said, I was thinking today because I was trying to drill down to the real roots of what's going on. I know that that's your beat, so to speak, as well. I was thinking, okay, well, what is this fundamental error? Let, let's assume that there's some, inter it's not just sheer hatred of, of liberty and, and possibility, but there's some metaphysical or epistemological error that's occurring deep down in Western consciousness at the moment. And I think it does come out of the left. It comes out of communism in particular. And I think it's the idea that human beings are almost exclusively environmentally influenced, that there's no sort of innate uh, aspects or characteristics or differences between men and women, between ethnic groups, between it's not just all cultural. And so in the communist model, the worker is his personality, his way of life, his being is kind of um, determined by his economic relationship to the ownership of capital. And, you know, there's tons of movies. We've all seen this. You know, I was thinking of, of Eddie Murphy's movie um, uh, Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd where, you know, he's a homeless guy, but they put him in a suit and suddenly he's like an incredible 
master stock trader and so on, right? And so there's this idea that everything's circumstantial, everything's environmental, and human beings are basically just liquids that are poured into various economic or social containers. And if you take water out of one container and put it in a new container, then it just takes the shape of that new container. So I think there's this kind of idea that if the migrants come from North Africa or Syria or the other countries around which uh, they're uh, originating from, they come to Europe. And the multicultural idea is they're going to become a lot more like Europeans, that they're just like pouring into the container called Europe. They're going to change their shape into being Europeans. The fact that there is countless examples throughout history of where this simply doesn't happen. I mean, one one tiny example is that there are a bunch of Germans who went to work for the czars in the 19th century in Russia, were there for over 100 years, uh, never learned Russian, never uh, acclimated to, to the, um, the, so, the, the pre-Soviet lifestyle, 19th century Russian lifestyle. And then when the, Tsar, when the uh, Russian Revolution happened in 1917, they all just swarmed back to Germany and resumed their former life. And that's one of many sort of examples of the fact that culture seems to be, whether it's culture or something even more fundamental or biological, seems to be something which is almost impossible to change. And so this idea that there's going to be a blending a, doesn't seem to work historically, and B, of course, there are some great writers on the right, and you would assume that if the leftists believe that everybody just conformed to their environment, that what they do is hire these great writers from the right, surround them with leftists, and then, of course, they'd all be leftists because they're just surrounded by that whole thing. But they know that wouldn't be the case, which is why they resolutely keep anybody who's not a leftist out of their editorial boards and off their writing stuffs. But I think this idea that we are so adaptable to our environment is kind of foundational to this because if you don't accept that, and I think there's really, really good reasons not to, then the disaster that's looming is very clear. But if you think that people are just so flexible that you take someone from North Africa, you put them in Germany and, you know, bingo, bango, bongo, within five or 10 years, they're pretty much like a German, boy, uh, that's a pretty big assumption to have in the face of countervailing evidence and a huge amount is riding on a very shaky assumption. Well, and it's been discredited over and over again. I mean, Merkel herself admitted back, I think it was in 2010, that multiculturalism has failed. This has been known for a long time now. And in fact, ISIS's own manifesto, which I reported on a couple of months ago, they came out and brazenly said, look, we're infiltrating this wave of migrants to create these ghettos in the West because we're going to arm and radicalize the ghettos. Now you've got the French army preparing for reappropriation of national territory because they believe that somewhere down the line, when we already had mass Muslim riots in Paris in 2005, that these armed radicalized immigrant communities are going to rise up and actually forcefully take surrounding territory. Now, I went to Molenbeek in Belgium um, right after the Paris massacre and saw it for myself because, of course, prior to that, we had the left claiming that Muslim ghettos don't exist. You can go and walk around them. You won't be attacked. Everybody's really tolerant. Of course, you remember the Fox News presenter got sued, I think it was by the mayor of Paris, for suggesting that there were no-go Muslim ghettos in Paris. He was sued for that, and it became this whole oh, this right-wing idea about Muslim no-go areas is just a conspiracy theory. Well, I went to one back in November, Molenbeek, the day after they caught one of the individuals, they raided him, who was involved in the Paris massacre. Now, of course, the day before the media were all there, they left immediately after. There was no one there. There were no police there. 
there was me and two other reporters for InfoWars, and we were basically there for a, a total of about 20 minutes, walked into the middle of Molenbeek, this, this Muslim ghetto in Brussels, Belgium, <laughs> and we were basically chased out of there for being white. We were surrounded by people in cars screaming at us, flipping the bird at us. We tried to go into a, a restaurant to get something to eat. They said, no, we don't serve white people. And this was at the same time while I was reading in leftist publications and while the mayor of London was saying that Muslim no-go areas in the West don't exist, that it's a conspiracy theory, while I was being chased out of one in Brussels, Belgium, right after the Paris massacre. So you've got that happening. You've got ISIS admitting that they're creating these ghettos to radicalize them. So, of course, it's a completely failed policy, again, based on this arrogance of the political elite that they can throw us all into this melting pot and everybody's going to get along and it's going to be a utopia but utopia doesn't exist these are bad cultures they're not compatible with western liberal secular society and as the french security forces the german security forces are now preparing for is going to end in civil unrest if it's not reversed so it's a completely failed policy well, I would argue that it's probably going to go a lot beyond civil unrest uh, because uh, these um, cult cultures where multiculturalism, quote, is a value, right? Then those cultures, I think, can intermingle fairly well, which is why there's no big German no-go zone ghetto uh, anywhere in America or in other places where the Germans go. The real question, of course, for people who believe in this uh, multiculturalism, the real question is what is their relationship to ideologies that are specifically opposed to multiculturalism. That, to me, is the, is the big question. Um, it's the sort of oil and water mixture scenario. Uh, so when people say, well, multiculturalism is a value, then you have to, I always ask them, well, okay, well, for those cultures that oppose multiculturalism, can they mix as well? And that's, of course, where you generally get the deer in the headlights and, you know, let's change the subject situation. But that's so foundational. If multiculturalism is a value, what is the relationship between Western intellectuals and cultures that are antithetical to multiculturalism like Islam? Well, Islam is completely regressive and incompatible with Western culture and any, any kind of modern culture that we would want to move towards. It goes back to the point I made. Some cultures are better than others. Take India, for example, okay? UNICEF, every single year in India, has to do a massive PR training program to teach people in India not to crap in the streets, okay? 600 million Indians crap in the streets. That's half of the population, even though they could be using toilets. The, the impact of that is the contamination of the water supply, it leads to the malnutrition of children. It affects half of the children in those cities where this is taking place. And so UNICEF has to go in every single year and say, please don't crap on the street. It's causing disease. But they still do it because it's part of their culture. And again, it goes back to this same idea. Joe Biggs, who was in Afghanistan and Iraq, experienced the culture of people in the Afghan security forces who like to rape young boys. And the U.S. Army was ordered to overlook that, to not say anything about it, because it was part of their culture. So again, as you said, it goes back to the fact that Islam is regressive, that the problem is not with radical Islam, the problem is with just Islam, because these regressive beliefs, 
the belief that women who are raped can be stoned to death, that homosexuals can be executed, that people who leave the religion of Islam can be killed, um, that honor killings are acceptable. Those beliefs are not held by a minority of, quote, radical Islamists. If you go and look at the Pew Research figures, Muslim attitudes in the Middle East and North Africa, significant majorities of people in many of these major countries believe in Sharia law and they believe in killing people for being raped, executing gays, and so on and so forth. So this is not a tiny minority. The problem is with Islam itself, but we can't draw attention to that because it's racist, even though Islam isn't a race, and because of Islamophobia, which again, you know, they asked Michel Welbeck, the French author, are you an Islamophobe? And he said, yes, by the pure definition of the term, I'm afraid of this culture because it's a danger to Western society. It's a threat to the safety of women. It's a threat to the safety of minorities. But the illiberal left won't draw attention to it because in the league table of the oppression Olympics, Muslims rank right at the top. So they would rather defend them rather than stand for actual liberal principles. Oh, good heavens. I mean, being an Islamophobe is a complete misnomer because Islam is a set of ideas and ideas can't do you any harm. I'm more of a beheadophobe. Uh, that, that's sort of where – because it's the actual actions people take in pursuit of that ideology that bothers me more. I think – and this is a pretty sensitive subject maybe even for your listeners as well, though I've talked about it on my show with a bunch of experts. But I'm also concerned about the degree of bio – incompatibility between uh, people from the Middle East and people from Europe. And the reason for that is that um, people in Europe, of course, um, cousin marriages have been banned for millennia. And uh, there's no particular history of it in the West. That is not the case in the Middle East. I'll just give you some numbers here. Uh, In Algiers, um, up to 34% of all marriages are consanguine or blood-related, 46% in Bahrain, 33% in Egypt, 80% in Nubia, southern area in Egypt, 60% in Iraq, 47% in Mauritania, 54% in Qatar, 67% in Saudi Arabia, 63% in Sudan, 40% in Syria, 39% in Tunisia, 45% in the United Arab Emirates, sorry, 54% and 45% in Yemen. Now, cousin marriages is extremely bad for genetics, as I'm sure we're all aware. Uh, it, it costs between 10 and 16 points in IQ. Uh, of course, birth defects are considerably higher. Uh, there's a study that shows the risk of having an IQ lower than 70 goes up 400% from 1.2% in children from normal parents to 6.2% in inbred children. And uh, I, the, the study that I read also said that in England, uh, children of the Pakistani parents are 13 times more likely to be suffering from birth, de- birth defects and mental retardation and so on. And this could go somewhere to explaining why the average uh, IQ in a lot of Middle Eastern countries, uh, somewhere between 80 and 90. And you cannot run a Western civilization with a huge import of population, which has on average an intelligence level, a standard deviation below the natives. Uh, unfortunately, uh, right in that area of IQ is a sweet spot for aggression and uh, criminality. Uh, people whose IQ are below 70, 75 tend to be relatively peaceful. People like, with IQs uh, 90 and above tend to be relatively peaceful. I'm sort of concerned that because of this history of uh, consanguinity and other 
obviously cultural and religious sort of markers which have helped breed for aggression for the past 400 years, that there may in fact be a kind of bio-incompatibility. In other words, even if everybody accepted the culture of the West, there may not be the uh, kind of uh, history of um, cousin marriages and blood-related marriages and so on may have lent a bio-incompatibility between countries in the Middle East and uh, countries in Europe. And that, that's a problem because one of the offshoots of this migrant wave is this sexual jihad. I mean, this is what's taking place. You've got top imams, for example, at the Alaska Mosque in Jerusalem. We had this video a few months ago where this Sheikh Mohammed Ayed gets up in front of his, um, his people there in the mosque and says, we will give them fertility. We will breed children with them because we shall conquer their countries. And he talks about how Europe's fertility is on the decline because, of course, white people aren't having kids anymore. And he says, basically, quote, we shall soon collect them in the name of the coming caliphate. So it's also a sexual jihad. Of course, this is straight out of the Quran. Islam teaches Muslims that it's acceptable um, to follow in the footsteps of Muhammad and take women as sex slaves. Of course, he, he consummated his marriage with a nine-year-old girl as well. So this is part of the migrant wave. And this is why this gang rape has been so prevalent since it started. So if, if that is indeed true, that they're bringing in a lower IQ, then yes, it's a problem because that is one of the primary stated goals of this migrant invasion is to, quote, outbreed European citizens. And this idea of bringing in, you know, there's, there's two general things that's supposed to civilize the savage male heart. And number one is having, uh, getting married. Number two is having children. And they can see levels of testosterone go down considerably. I'm actually a stay-at-home dad and reading that level of how far my testosterone apparently has diminished should have given me a full head of rich and spiky hair like yours. But um, the, it's like it can go down as much as 40% when you, when you have kids and the more exposure you have to kids. So it tends to make um, men less aggressive. Of course, you know, you want to be aggressive and assertive, go out there and get the resources so you can be a good provider. That's sort of the way that we evolved. But you don't want to have that same level of aggression around babies and toddlers <laughs> because, you know, that's dangerous. And so, again, biologically speaking, bringing in a whole bunch of young males who have almost no opportunity for marriage and kids uh, is... Um, I mean, it doesn't matter where they're coming from. That's a recipe for disaster no matter how you cut it. Well, it is. And I mean, if you look at the figures, um, they've analyzed Western European men since the late 80s. Both fertility and testosterone have been dropping anyway. So we've seen that trend. And again, it, it is about a sexual jihad. It's about people who call it a, a gang rape game. This is the game to them. And now we have a spate of cases and why should we be surprised when this has been happening in the Middle East? Because it's, quote, part of their culture. So it doesn't come as a surprise. Um, and it's, it's a threat to women. Why do you think the birth rates among European and European-derived countries are going down so precipitously? I think in, in uh, Italy, it's like 1.1 or 1.2, like near Japanese levels of infertility. What do you think the drivers are behind that? Well, this is when we get into the realm of conspiracy. I don't know. Some of the speculation was that it, it was tainted water supply and things like that. I'm not an expert on it. But those, those figures are true. I've, I've seen them before. Of course, we've had people like John Holdren, Obama's former science czar, 
who wrote a book back in the 60s called Eco-Science about how he wanted to reduce world population by basically poisoning the water supply to reduce fertility. So we've got people who have been at prominent levels of power throughout the decades who have who've made that pro proclamation because they believe in, the again, the debunked myth of overpopulation, which if you look at the UN's own figures, the human population will start to decline naturally when it hits 9 billion. Of course, that is dependent on the standard of living in Middle East and in North African countries being raised, which naturally reduces the birth rate. So if that happens, and if these countries are allowed to develop, then maybe the migrant issue won't be an issue at all. Because, but because we're the best that the world has to offer in terms of civilization and standard of living, they're all coming here. So it's going to be a problem. And what's amazing to me about it is I had a couple of video clips in my uh, YouTube video called The Rape of Europe, where you actually had German politicians. There was a Green Party politician who got up in front of the German parliament, the Bundestag, and said that within 20 to 30 years, Germans will be a minority in German cities. And then she, she addressed the, quote, right wing in the parliament and said, and that's a good thing. So she was openly celebrating the demographic suicide of her own population. This was a white woman, of course, as a good thing. You had another German politician, and the clip's also in that video, Gregor Geisy, who smacked his lips in a smarmy way and smiled about the fact he basically referred to the German population as Nazis and said oh, it's a good thing that the Nazis didn't have enough children because they're going to be bred out very soon. He made these comments on the eve of a pro-migration rally. Again, another white leftist. So they're openly celebrating the demographic suicide of their own population. And, I mean, that, that goes even beyond just goals of, you know, importing migrants to create a voting bloc to some weird, bizarre sexual cuckold type situation, which I've talked about on Alex's show before, um, which, which goes even deeper and into more sordid depths than, than anyone could possibly imagine. And when, when or oh, when did it happen that we, as a culture, as people involved in public discourse as a whole, completely threw any kind of reason and evidence out of, out of the window and just basically went on pure, rampant sentimentalism, emotional self-gratification, moral self-posturing. I mean, I put a video out uh, talking about how cheap it is. Let's say you want to help the migrants, right? Okay, so they fled Syria. There's a brutal civil war and so on, right? To send money over to the migrants where they are is far cheaper than to bring them into your own country. Right. And of course, you know, if, if they're going to Saudi Arabia, then there's a similar religion, the same religion for the most part. And uh, it's the same language, same uh, geographical environment, same climate. You know, they're used to it all. And so if you let's say the people wake up one day and say, we've got to help these migrants, you know, everyone's compassionate to a reasonable degree. Then we would sit down and say, OK, what's the very best way to help these migrants? And the answer would be, OK, well, we need to send them money to resettle in the Middle East because it's uh, you can do like 
10 to 1 or 12 to 1, I think it was. You can help 12 people in the Middle East for every one person that is allowed to come into Europe. And that, so even if we were to accept the sort of general collectivist premise that the government should send money or people should send money, okay, when did we just completely abandon any kind of analysis of a social problem and just become ridiculously sentimental, not bring any facts or any rationality to bear on the situation? I don't know exactly when that happened, but it seems like, we're a long way past that turnoff. Well, it happened in the most recent example as a result of basic media deception. I mean, the first images we saw when this migrant issue really came to the fore back in September was babies arriving at a, a train station in Munich or Berlin, the leftists there with their refugee welcome signs clapping, and the entire narrative from the start was these are Syrian families. Of course, the numbers came out, four-fifths of the, quote, refugees weren't even Syrian. That number's changed now that they've got very swift, easy access to fake Syrian passports. And 72% of the migrants are unaccompanied, predominantly young men. So those figures were acknowledged by the UN, but that wasn't the narrative we were seeing on the mainstream media because there was a deliberate decision to deceive people, to mislead people, now we have the top, uh, the control of the former CEO of ZDF, this top German broadcaster, saying that they're ordered to report on what the government tells them to, to please An Angela Merkel. This was the same broadcaster that covered up uh, migrant rapes and criminal acts because they, quote, didn't want to discredit the migrant wave and legitimize critics of mass migration. So a lot of the left wingers welcomed this because they were misled. But then a lot of them welcomed it because, again, they have no principles. They would rather be seen as good people rather than actually be good people. And because they're prone in this narcissistic age of Facebook and Twitter and social media to virtue signaling. So I can't tell you how many people I know that have told me, oh, I'm going to adopt a, a Syrian baby or I'm going to allow a migrant to live in my house. Of course, these are the most Scrooge-like people you could ever meet. They wouldn't give a, a, a dollar to a homeless guy on the street. And if you actually look at the research, this proves that they're just virtue signalers because poorer conservatives are more generous than wealthier liberals, and they don't tend to brag about it. So the people who brag about how humanitarian and caring and feeling they are towards those less fortunate than them are the most miserly the most Scrooge-like, and there was a major study which proved that. So I think it's partly about media deception. We were told these were poor Syrian families. Now it's a mass tidal wave of economic migrants because we were misled, and it's people who were prone to virtue signaling because they would look, rather look good in front of their peers rather than actually take the time to think about and study these issues with logic and reason. Now, I had a thought. I'll run it past you. I mean, this is years ago. I gave a speech in Phoenix, and I was talking about when the government begins to truly run out of money. And the demographic issues in Europe, of course, are that people have been paying into these retirement schemes, these coercive retirement schemes their whole lives, which requires the replenishment of the planet's population so that they can fasten their ancient vampire teeth on the jugulars of the young. And there aren't enough young to even remotely pay for the um, baby boomers' retirement. I remember in that speech I said that um, 
when the government begins to run out of money, it's going to set people against each other. It's going to come up with a scapegoat. Uh, at that time, I thought it was going to be the poor. And, and uh, now it sort of – it struck me as interesting that just at a time when Europe is facing its true demographic crisis, which fundamentally because it's a state of society is an uh, economic crisis, that all of these incompatible cultures are being imported at a time when the government is getting very close to running out of the capacity to pay its bills. And I just wonder the degree to which this incompatibility is known and the degree to which they can then say, well, you know, we have to have austerity because of the migrants and there's going to be a lot of social unrest, which is going to distract people. It's hard to make the case for people to um, make sacrifices in peacetime, right? I mean, you, you give somebody a ration book in peacetime and they're very upset with you. But you can give them a ration book in wartime and they will knuckle down and they will accept the austerity that is necessary in wartime. And of course, Europe can't have wars between the countries anymore because of nukes and, and all that kind of stuff. And of course, of general unfitness of the young men for any kind of military combat. But um, I think this kind of civil unrest could be a way in which the austerity that is going to be required is going to be smuggled in. People are too distracted with the social upheaval and potential civil wars to, to fight back that much. And I don't know if that's a plan like a smoky backroom plan or just the instincts of those who are in charge, but I could certainly see how it could be advantageous to governments running out of cash. No, I tend to agree. I mean, this idea that wealth inequality actually benefits the elite in the sense that it allows them to have these riots, have these mass revolts over austerity, and then use them to rebrand authoritarianism. So you get the mass of the population to approve of the measures used to quell the social disorder. I think that's genu genuinely an issue. But then you've got the other idea, which is, as you mentioned, Germany, one of their reasons for importing these huge numbers of people that they've given, that the government has given, is that they don't have enough people to do, you know, menial jobs and low-wage labor. That's why they need this huge constant source of migrants. But then if you look at, for example, Sweden, which of course has imported um, almost as many migrants as Germany, you know, in relation to their population, 58% of welfare payments in Sweden go to immigrants. So huge numbers of these migrants aren't even in jobs in the first place. The ones that arrive in Germany are immediately put on unemployment benefits. They're given free health care. So the idea that they're importing them for work doesn't make sense when most of the benefit money goes straight to them anyway. And again, in Sweden, 48% of immigrants in Sweden of working age don't work. So they're not really creating a labor force. They're creating more people that are dependent on the state. So in an economic sense, given those figures, it doesn't really make sense. No, and of course, the more kids they have and the fertility rate of um, immigrant cultures in Europe is far higher than the domestic population. Children are a short-term cost to society that pay off decades later in terms of earnings. But in the short run, uh, they're going to provide significant costs to um, to the local infrastructure. And this is one of the most frustrating things about, <laughs> there's so much frustrating about this, people inability to listen to reason. But this has happened so many times before. And it's really annoying. Uh, there's an old movie, Patton, with George C. Scott, where he's, uh, he's talking about his German 
uh, enemy. And he's like, uh, uh, I read your book. He's got these two. <laughs> I read your book. I can defeat your tank. He, and there is a book about how to defeat empires that's written in the Middle East. And uh, it's been used many, many times throughout history. And generally, it involves um, sucking uh, the West into unwinnable wars in Afghanistan. That's it's called the graveyard of empires for a reason. And, of course, they can't fight against uh, the West's military power or prowess. But what they can do is continually overburden the West's economy until the Western economy collapses. That's exactly what the CIA taught the Mujahideen to do in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And now they're doing exactly the same thing. I mean, this is how civilizations fall is when people on the outside say, well, we can't fight you, but we sure as heck could drain your capital reserves until your economy collapses of its own accord. And coming in and going on welfare is entirely, to me, part of that plan. They get to not have to go to work and destroy the economy of their historical enemies. Uh, and the fact that people haven't read these very clear um, battle plans, so to speak, is really quite frustrating. And they be shocked when you bring it up. It's like, I'm just reading what they're saying. No, I mean, that is in the Quran. It's called uh, Hijrah. It's, it's jihad by emigration. It's this idea that moving to a new land to bring Islam there in the footsteps of the prophet is, you know, a highly meritorious act. In fact, there's a quote, and whoever emigrates for the cause of Allah will find on the earth many locations and abundance. That's straight out of the Quran. So for many of these people, again, considering the fact that a lot of them, you know, a lot of them are just economic migrants trying to find a better life, but a lot of them are Islamists. They import their Islamist ideology. In fact, they had an interview with uh, one migrant on a train in Germany, I remember, who said, it's my goal to Islamize Europeans. So for many of them, they see this uh, migrant wave as part of this hijra, this jihad by emigration. And that's what it's all about. It's about subversion, not only economically, but obviously culturally as well. But then you look at you know, we were talking about uh, Germany needing all these migrants for cheap labor. Another example which kind of contradicts that is the Czech Republic, which I visited um, last year. Now, this is a country which has got very, very low immigration. They've had a stable population for 100 years. It's always hovered around the 9, 10 million level. Hasn't really increased a lot at all. And they have low immigration. They don't need to import people to do menial jobs yet they've got the most thriving economy in Europe. They've got a good standard of living and they've got affordable housing. So, But they've had that model for the entirety of their existence, basically, whereas Germany has you know, had this model of dependency uh, for many decades now. So the Czech Republic is just an example of how it can be done. You don't need to import huge numbers of people to maintain a, a stable producing economy because they don't and they've proven to be a uh, an economic success, even as the rest of Europe has remained in recession. Yeah, I mean, I, when people come up with these ex post facto justifications for not wanting to enforce their borders and, oh, we need the cheap labor, it's like, that's all nonsense. I mean, what I, that everybody knows who's, who's got any perception what the real issue is in Europe. And the real issue in Europe is that nobody wants to use force to turn the boats back because then everybody's going to go completely hysterical and racist and violence and this and that and the other. And uh, the fact that the Syrian boy drowned in the surf 
because his father was a human smuggler looking to get his teeth fixed in Canada, I think it was, and that that child would not have drowned in the surf if the boats had been turned back originally is something that they just don't want to see guns pointed at boats. Whereas in Malaysia, there were a bunch of uh, people who wanted to come in. They just said, hey, here's some food and supplies, but you can't land here. And if these boats had been turned back, if the borders had been enforced, none of all of the resulting aggression uh, and, and potential violence and real loss of life would have occurred. But people are so ridiculously hypersensitive to any manifestation of state power, though at the same time they keep demanding that the state do more and more and more for them, that the idea, well, we're going to say, well, you've got to turn the boats back, uh, you can't land here, and there's going to be guns out to enforce that. Well, that's what the state is. That's what the state does. Everybody's terrified, particularly in Germany, of course, of the optics. And it's literally like European civilization is going to die because we're afraid of bad PR. That is how frustrating it generally is. I mean, that's definitely part of it in Germany. It's this, it's this white guilt, this World War II hangover. So now they must prostrate themselves and basically sacrifice Western civilization on the altar of white guilt. And then another factor, as you alluded to, was the left wing. Now, the left wing is becoming so cozy with Islamists that ISIS is now, again, in the same manifesto I talked about earlier, they're talking about co-opting, infiltrating anti-capitalist left wing groups, hiring them, giving them weapons to fight for the conquest of the West, for the conquest of Rome, because they broadly now share the same political beliefs. So when actual violent jihadists are saying... Hey, look, those those anonymous people, they're, they're really on our side. We should give them weapons. We should radicalize them. That just shows you how, again, cuckolded the political left has become uh, with political Islam. Now to the point where in Calais, we had the video last week, where the migrants are attacking residents in Calais on residential streets, throwing bricks at their houses, being cheered on by left-wing open border people, even as... These same left-wing, no-borders activists are being raped in the Calais migrant camps. And there was another example, a similar example today, where this left-wing journalist goes into the migrant camp to tell their story. He ends up being the victim of a knife attack, but then he blames it on Britain for not allowing the migrants to enter Britain. So again, it's this extreme cuckolding, this complete Stockholm syndrome to the point where ISIS is saying, hey, we share the same beliefs, let's unite. So, I mean, that, that's the insanity, that's the level that it's reached now. Well, and of course, uh, I put that argument out before, that if the wars in the Middle East are legitimate, then you can't possibly take young men of military age from a country you're currently fighting. I mean, I, I, like how this even needs to be said, I can't imagine Churchill saying, well, you know, what we need to do is bring a whole bunch of young military-aged German men in in the middle of the Second World War. I mean, it makes no sense at all. I don't believe that the wars were legitimate. I think that they are imperialistic. I think that the West should have nothing to do with the Middle East. Uh, and I think that the West should sign, find, try and find its own sources of energy so that you don't keep piling massive amounts of money into a highly unstable and aggressive region. That's a topic perhaps for another time. But the basic reality is that if the wars are legitimate, you can't take any migrants. And if the wars are illegitimate, then you need to figure out how to try your own leaders for war crimes, the international crime of aggression, rather than taking in uh, the, the, um, 
the victims of the uh, aggression overseas. But this idea that you can have it both ways, well, there's kind of a conflict going on, but we're going to take these people in anyway. It's such a uh, lack of self-defense of anything that people have fought and died for since the days of Socrates, 2,500 years, people have fought and died to build something decent in the West. And uh, the fact that people are throwing it away for the short-term dopamine hit of moral posturing uh, is incredibly frustrating. But I will give you, I will give you, Paul, <laughs> uh, the last word. Uh, what is it that you would really like the people of Europe to hear in terms of how they can rouse themselves from this hypnosis that's taken them off a cliff? Well, I mean, my worry is, as we've seen to some extent already, the vacuum created by the left, by the regressive left, in failing to impose, to oppose the intolerant belief system of Islam, that vacuum is now being filled by actual neo-Nazis and extremists. So those are the only people that are going to be out on the streets, and they're certainly more violent and unhinged than anyone else. So that's only then going to embolden Muslims on the opposite side of the equation who will be attracted more to this uh, jihadist Islamist rhetoric. So we need the regressive left to actually grow a pair, to stand up for classically liberal principles and oppose this violent, intolerant belief system, which says that throwing gays off buildings, stoning women to death, killing people who leave the faith of Islam is, you know, acceptable. We shouldn't be importing that kind of culture in the West. We've already got, you know, 7% Muslim population in France. We've got Sharia courts in Britain. We've seen the growth of this prior to the migrant crisis. And this is only exacerbating the problem. It's going to create radicalized ghettos. It's going to create domestic disorder. And as some of these military heads are now even warning throughout Europe, the Swiss, the Swedish, the Norwegian military heads, it could even create actual war again on the continent of Europe. That's the ultimate catastrophe if we don't pull back and restore some sanity uh, and basically stand up to people like Angela Merkel to vote them out of office and to try and appeal with reason, not with extremism, um, for actual liberals to stand up for liberal principles and not denigrate Islam, Muslim reformers who have risked their lives speaking out against the intolerant aspects of Islam. Well said. All right. So just to give your vital statistics out to uh, my audience as well, senior news editor for Infowars.com. And um, thanks again, uh, Paul, as always, for this conversation and for everything that you're doing for the cause of freedom and clarity. Okay. Thanks, Stefan.